0: Science & Wisdom Live is a project of Jamyang London Buddhist Centre, a non-profit organisation. Please consider supporting us with a donation to help us keep our podcasts and videos free and ad-free. To support us now, please visit our website at scienceandwisdomlive.com. This episode is an excerpt of one of our science and wisdom dialogues. To listen to the full recording, please follow the link in the podcast description. So before we get into all the wonderful questions about your writing and and politics and social action, I wanted to ask you a little bit about spirituality. You know, this podcast is for uh, skeptics who are curious particularly about Buddhism and and the ideas that it uh, brings to a meaningful and engaged life. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about you know your own spirituality and how Buddhism plays uh, any role in that?
1: Yes, um, it, I'm happy to talk about it. I was brought up uh, as a Lutheran and the moment that I left home to go to college, I kind of left the church out of a feeling that it wasn't right for me. And very soon after I got to college, I ran into science fiction and psychedelics and the sierra nevada and gary snyder and also the works of uh, chinese landscape poetry Y uh, lim yip was a professor of mine at uc san diego and he taught chinese landscape poetry and he was from taiwan and a, a beautiful man and gary came down and gave a reading at ucsd and i read all his works And I saw, I read all of Alan Watts. I saw Ram Dass maybe four times in my life, but two early on in those days. And I had some transcendental experiences, uh, almost always in nature, uh, having to do with uh, psychedelics, but framed by Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception and by Alan Alan Watts and by D.T. Suzuki, And that whole tradition of, I was connecting up with something. And I have to mention also Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan, uh, these were in the air. You could almost date me by these books. We're talking 1971, 72, 73. And what persisted out of that was Zen. And the idea that daily life is devotional and can be devotional if you treat the world as sacred. And I mean, it's clearly mysterious, you don't even have to point that out, but as mystical that there's a, sometimes you have a sense of a wholeness, sometimes you have a sense of the, the universe that you're just a, some kind of quantum foam in some larger universal entanglement. Um, I see no reason not to call that a spiritual feeling. So all across the board, I am very happy to think of myself as some kind of um, Zen Buddhist. And what I love about this is that reading the Dalai Lama and looking into Tibetan Buddhism, which I did for my Green Earth Project, the Dalai Lama would be fine with my Buddhism, and the Buddha would be fine with my Buddhism. You know, there is no doctrinaire dogmatism that says, oh, you're not doing it right. You're not serious enough. You're... You're too uh, California hippie, New Age, playful. Well, that doesn't exist. That's not a. I don't feel that kind of a judgment being made on me by anybody, which is great.
0: Mm. So, so this is interesting hearing about you know, your own spirituality and especially how that's rooted in nature, and that obviously makes a lot of sense because most of your career has been writing fiction that either very explicitly or you know even or subtly deals with nature, the climate, the human effect on nature. And you were quite on your own for a few decades there, (laughs) writing speculative fiction centered on climate change. Um, I'm sad to say maybe even you're still (laughs) a little bit alone on having an optimistic stance to it. Um, But how did you become an activist in this area so early? And how does fiction give you a path to help change society?
1: It's always good to, give thanks to my great teacher Ursula K Le Guin as being a precursor a a leader uh, the 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 point person and doing green science fiction and being both an environmentalist and a science fiction writer and no contradiction whatsoever in that in fact a, a quite a beautiful and powerful stance so she was a teacher of mine and a friend uh, for most of my life. And, and I, I miss her because she, she, you can't quite imagine what she would say about anything whatsoever. You kind of need her to say her piece. I wrote my Mars trilogy. Well, this was an attempt to combine utopian and wilderness and all kinds of things I was interested in at once, um, leftist social change, etc. But what it did was it gave me the opportunity to apply to the US National Science Foundation to go to Antarctica as part of their Antarctic Artists and Writers Program, which they had up until the Trump administration killed it. We plan on bringing it back, and uh, I think it'll work. Well, they sent me down there, and I was in Antarctica for a couple of months, and all the scientists down there, this was 1995, they were saying climate change is going to hammer us. It's going to become the next topic, and we're standing on a cake of ice that if it were to melt, sea level would be 270 feet higher. And I thought, my Lord, that's a number. And so my novel, Antarctica, only partly takes that on. But ever since 95, I have had this topic etched in my mind as being really what near future science fiction should be about. I don't always write near future science fiction, but I often do. And so more and more as these, these, that's 25 years ago now. Um, it's be, become more on the public's mind. It's become more the central event in human history for this century. And so I I, I caught that wave a little ahead of the, the big break. Uh, and I've tried to stay ahead the whole way, but I tell you, there's more happening than any one individual can keep track of.
0: I want to talk about that book in particular, Ministry for the Future. It's you're addressing climate, fighting climate change in a very realistic and detailed form in this. It's your latest novel for anyone who doesn't know. And not to be a spoiler, but it's optimistic. So you yeah. you posit that it's hard work, but if that we put enough resources behind it, the climate crisis can be overcome. So could you tell us why we should be optimistic about humanity's ability to deal with climate change, um, particularly from your novel's perspective, You know, especially a novel that begins with uh, millions of people dying from a heat wave in India.
1: If we were to do everything that we know we should do, uh, in an effect, run the table, all hands on deck manner, we can indeed um, dodge the mass extinction event, which would hammer us as well. And this is what I'm saying, this not just an, as a personal opinion, but as a scientific judgment that comes out of the IPCC and what you might call the the integrated scientific general intellect which takes thousands of working scientists in their disciplines to come out of their their wells their holes in the ground of their own particular research project and talk with each other about what it means and then come to the general public and say this is what it means we could indeed do it and get to uh, the best case scenario is pretty great It's just that we have to run the table to get there. And we Mm -hmm. have less and less time. This is the sensibleness of talking about 2030 is not that the world will end in 2030 or turn into a zombie movie in 2030 if we don't do things right. If we don't do things right in 2030, things will superficially look somewhat like now, but, enough will be thrown off in the physical biosphere. The the biophysical surround, our home, our planet, Gaia, will be deranged to the point where uh, we will have a really hard time clawing back from that so that it will become desperate. So this is why people talk about the 2020s as being crucial.
0: I mean, one of the things that struck me about the novel is um, you didn't invent any wild technologies to solve this problem. For the most part, they are pre-existing technologies. Maybe some a little bit of the genetic engineering. You know, we didn't quite, we don't quite understand yet. But it was mostly about you know economics and politics. So, can you talk about the economic incentives that you imagine in your novel and how, through like tweaking capitalism, we could create economies that are more in harmony with the Earth's environment? You know, for example, you talk about a carbon coin. Um, which aligns economically, which aligns economic and ecological interests by rewarding carbon fixing?
1: Um, the reason I'm seized on this is because I feel like we only do have the 2020s and there's not time to invent a new political economy or to institute it given the massive um, um, in- legal, political, economical infrastructure that we're in. We got to use it to get to where we need to go. It's an awkward fit. So I came to the carbon coin, which is really just quantitative easing, similar to what we did in 2008 and 2020, where central banks, and I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies here. It's important to make the distinction and talk about fiat currencies, Mm -hmm. the US dollar ultimately, but it would have to be more than the dollar. It would have to be backed by all the major currencies so that there wasn't one country that was sticking their neck too far out, but all of them linking their their um, their strengths together, so that the central banks will issue will pay you to decarbonize. Anything from a nation state right down to individuals would get a carboni or or a carbon coin, uh, one coin for a ton of CO two drawn down out of the atmosphere, and then that coin would hopefully would would be backed by the central banks, by their long-term bank bonds, by their assets, such that that coin would be um, held at a level that meant that you would make money from decarbonizing rather than lose money. One
0: of the other things that delighted me about this novel is that the oil companies become one of the biggest allies in countering climate change uh, because they have the scale to work on massive climate shifting projects like pumping the water out from under the Antarctic ice sheet so it stops sliding into the ocean. Can you talk about how corporations can be allies in fighting the human created climate crisis?
1: I have no particular faith in corporations per Mm -hmm. se. I would say the people running them are just your ordinary well-meaning persons who are doing legal things. They're not cheaters. And this is the problem is that the law itself allows for destructive activities Mm -hmm. so if you were to disallow them you would be in a new political economy that wouldn't be what we're in now i call it post-capitalism because i don't want to call it socialism it will have aspects of socialism but it won't be socialism and that word carries such weight from the 19th and 20th century it's inappropriate in our moment of crisis to Use old names and get involved in old arguments about what worked and what didn't work. Um, I would say the public over the private. I would say public utility districts to put it in an American context. Mm-hmm. So these are the kind of economic thoughts I have that I try to describe.
0: So when I listen to people like Stuart Brandt of the Long Now Foundation, you know they've been talking for twenty years that this is inevitable. You know that we'll have to engineer the climate as part of the solution to climate change. Uh, but, of course, a lot of environmental activists are wholly against it can you Can you talk about your take on geoengineering
1: without going into the details of every geoengineering scheme, Let me just say this we 've got to probably get back down to the this beautiful Bill McKibben name for his organization back to three fifty parts mm-hmm. per million that 's gigatons, gigatons, billions of tons, in other words, of c o two drawn out of the atmosphere. And however you do it, if you name it geoengineering and suddenly a lot of leftists and environmentalists say, oh no, can't do that, but we have to. So you gotta get a grip and and look at the current situation and say, there are some emergency things we might have to do. And this even includes another generation of nuclear power as, mm-hmm. a, as a semi-clean energy. You can't stick with the old stereotype opinions that we formed when we were in an earlier time we're in an emergency now
0: i i want to switch gears a little bit because buddhist elements infuse several of your novels like the the char- the first book of yours i read the years of rice and salt where you have characters reborn again and again from the bardo into new bodies um and also, the Dalai Lama is a character that appears in Green Earth. So can you talk just personally about the influence of Buddhism on your life and work, your your inner life?
1: Well, I thought to myself, well, it's an Asian narrative i'm 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 interested in Buddhism. I'm living a kind of a California hippie Zen Buddhist life. Um, how about a reincarnation novel? And that got interesting. It turns out it's a genre. Uh, it's popular in Brazil, it's popular in various mystical uh, spaces where reincarnation is seen as a a nice uh, plot point, as a, a story to tell that has its own particular interest as a genre. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, that got me into a deep dive into Tibetan Buddhism, which I'd never, had always seemed a little too, um elaborate and spacey and medieval and indeed you know over concerned with reincarnation but for this novel i needed to get into it it was mostly a literary device Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was much more serious this is strange to say because years of rice and salt is one of my favorite novels of my own and it is very much of a buddhist novel but the buddhism in it is not as close to my heart as the stuff that's in green earth daily life in washington dc a scientist who's very hard-headed very skeptical very empirical very non-spiritual listens to a lecture by an old buddhist monk a tibetan and he has that moment of satori what is the an excess of reason is itself a form of madness and that koan sentence hits him like ringing a bell. He staggers out of that lecture and he's never the same. So there I think I'm onto something much more fundamental to our experience, even though I do love the device of the Bardo uh, and the reincarnation story that Years of Rice and Salt depends on. That's a great game to play literarily. And you can think of reincarnation as a metaphor like in our own lives. Okay, you wake up every morning, you're not, you know, you've been reborn from the day before. Or every five years, you're living a completely different life, you know, different people, you're in a different place, have you not in some senses reincarnated? And metaphorically, it's very useful.
0: There's a beautiful quote of yours from the years of rice and salt that I wrote down immediately when I read it, and it stuck me over the years. You said, until we treat all beings equally, and all have the same opportunities for health, happiness, and security. Perhaps history has not yet really begun for humanity. We have not yet lived up to basic universal human rights. So can you talk about what a vision of the world is where we do live up to basic universal human rights? And is there a path to get there?
1: Yes. It's funny. I remember that quote. There was some historian in Years of Rice and Salt. Maybe it was the It's strange being a reincarnation story. There's only really three characters in Mm -hmm. an 800 page novel. It was probably the I character or maybe the K character. The B character is not so philosophical as to thought up something like that. Um, But I think the quote goes on that history hasn't even begun yet. We're just in some some horrible prehistory.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Well, sure. Again, I think it's so obvious. So food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education, this depends on electricity, uh, energy source for everybody equally at a level of adequacy. This is a utopia for humans. Then you just extend that out to all sentient beings and realize that the bacteria have to be um, doing well because they are actually part of you. The Gaia has to be doing well or else you also are sick.
0: What can we do? What could an ind- individual person listening to this do to concretely help the environment, to concretely move the world towards more you know, social justice and equality and the place that you envision it?
1: Every, maybe almost everywhere that your listeners will be has a local organization that already has um, things that you can do and plug into, useful things for decarbonizing fast. So you put your shoulder to the wheel but you don't have to invent the wheel. The wheels are there. And then you put your shoulder to the nearest wheel and push for a while. Um, you can decarbonize also by your personal habits and your attitudes. Yeah. You, should have, you should know your carbon burn the way that you know your weight on a scale.
0: <laughs> so Stan, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off?
1: Um, well, I, this is a Buddhist thing spend more time outdoors than you usually do because it's great for you and it's fun and so this is the fun of zen go outside Um, people who own dogs they own them in order to get outside twice a day Um, being outside is a virtue that we've lost in american middle-class culture and where you work inside you you sleep inside you play inside it's all indoors in these boxes and the world is astonishing and so get outside and then, as an example of this, I can say that I'm just finishing a nonfiction book about backpacking in the Sierra Nevada. And uh, it's been a joyful experience. So, part of that outdoorsness is not um, virtue, it's not exercise, it's play. And this is where I'm in a battle here in my own little village about uh, building an exercise space when you're in California and you can just go outside and walk around, and that's your exercise space but it's been commodified and and turned into work this is what america tends to do it's something that you work at and it's something that you pay for and you're being virtuous blah blah but play is simpler than that very childlike this is what the i know the dalai lama would love this just play for a while and that is very low carbon burn activity